Well, there are certain uh, sermons that get disclaimers, <clears throat> and this is one of them. <laughs> uh, you know, there are the sermons where uh, I have to stop by the nursery and inform the workers that we might go a little long today. Uh, certain sermons where I have to warn you that it's going to be pretty deep waters that we're swimming in. Uh, certain sermons where they will be, there will probably be dissenting opinions and different views in the room. Well, this checks all three of those boxes, so uh, that's exciting for me. <laughs> there is so much content on the topic that 2 Corinthians 3 brings up, and uh, it's hard to organize all these thoughts that I have, and I've done my best here to put it in a way that will hopefully help all of us to go through this study together. But really, the topic that we'll be addressing this week and next week is how are we sanctified, meaning how are we made holy in this life? Are we under the law in any sense? What does it mean to be led by the Spirit as opposed to under the law? Well, that is the big idea for the next couple of weeks. And according to Paul, in not just 2 Corinthians 3, but in several places, as you'll see in the next two weeks, Christians do have a decision to make. You have a decision to make when it comes to holy living, the law or the Spirit. The law or the Spirit. Is there an obligation that you have as a Christian to commandments that are etched in stone or to the new Spirit-led life of gospel grace. That's the way Paul presents it in 2 Corinthians 3 and in other places, and that's what we'll be examining in uh, this sermon. Well, I want to start in John 1 because we can take two other figures that I haven't mentioned yet and see their ministries toward us in contrast. The two figures I'm speaking of are Jesus and Moses. They certainly had a ministry toward mankind, both of them, but there's a contrast between the two. And I want us to see that starting in John 1, 14, reading down through verse 18. It says in John 1, 14, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father." full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Here's the contrast. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Now that's a pretty fascinating passage, isn't it? That's why I say it's never bad to go to John 1. You'll always find some amazing things in John chapter 1. But look at that contrast again in verse 17. The law was given through Moses, yet... Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
Now, that is not to say that there was no truth in the law. Heaven forbid, right? There was truth that came through the law. That's not even to say there was no grace in the law. You think of the um, cities of refuge provision that was found within the law. What a gracious act of God to provide refuge and caring for the foreigner, the sojourner, the alien, giving them food to eat. That's all grace. There's a lot of grace to be seen in the law. But grace and truth were not fully realized until the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as we get to 2 Corinthians, we can turn over there now, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to see that the apostle's heart, the heart of Paul here, was for Christians to understand and embrace and share the message of grace. What Christians are to do is to lay hold of the grace and truth that's ultimately realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that becomes the defining aspect of our ministry, is Jesus. Our obligation is to the one who came to be our Savior. And so I want to start in verse 2, where we covered this last week, so I'm not going to go through unpacking this, but just to catch us up. 2 Corinthians 3.2, Paul says to this church, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And I think I'll just stop there for the moment. And what we have to do as we begin examining particularly verses 6 and following, we have to get our bearings here, because you may have noticed just now that Paul is talking about tablets of stone. He's talking about the law. Specifically, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. What could tablets of stone mean but uh, the Ten Commandments? I mean, you've seen the movie, right? There are tablets of stone involved. And we should ask ourselves, what was the law? What were the Ten Commandments? And what has now changed? Because Paul is very clearly introducing some sort of change, isn't he? And we have to examine this and figure this out. It's a very, very big topic. But let's dive in. What was the law? What was the law? Let me give you one definition. The law was a temporary condition for God's covenant people. It was temporary, so it wasn't permanent, and it was a condition within a covenant that God made with His people. The law was a temporary condition for God's covenant people. Specifically, the law was Israel's obligation to God. The law served as what Israel was obligated to keep in their relationship with God. It was given to Israel as a holiness code. You want to know what holiness is? Go back and crack open the law and start reading through hundreds of commands and you will encounter a holy God, a holy God that should make you tremble 
if you are in touch with your natural condition. The law also functioned for Israel as a constitution of sorts, as a nation in a land. Perhaps you'll remember, especially if you've been coming on Wednesday nights, that God gave the nation of Israel a specific plot of land, didn't He? He gave Abraham, as the father of the children of Israel, a specific land for his descendants, and He gave them dimensions. It was from a certain river to another river. It was the land of Canaan. There it was. And it belongs to Israel forever. Genesis chapter 13 says this in plain language, this is your descendants' land forever. So there is no expiration on the land, okay? It's a, it's a forever promise belonging to that nation. However, the law came along hundreds of years later, oh, 400 years later to be a little more specific, And the law was given to Israel not as their means of owning the land. That's a done deal. God already told Abraham, this land belongs to your descendants forever, no conditions. And as we learn in the New Testament, once a covenant has been ratified, no one comes along and puts conditions on it. But the law came along as sort of Israel's certificate of occupancy. Now, I learned about certificates of occupancy whenever our house was being built where it's like, you own that plot of land, you own that house that's in perfectly fine condition that's up there, but you can't move in yet till you get a certificate that says you can be there. Because one last time, inspectors have to come and check the house and make sure you're not going to, you know, blow up the neighborhood or whatever with your gas stove or (laughs) I don't know what they're looking at at that point. They've looked at it so many times. But you can't spend a night in there until, you know, you get this certificate of occupancy. Well, the law for Israel that was given to them was kind of like their certificate of occupancy. But instead of God testing the land to see if the land was good enough, God was testing the people. The people had to be holy enough to dwell within that land. And God told them, as a part of the curse that comes with the law, if you're not good enough, all of these curses will come upon you. If you don't keep the law, if you are not holy unto the Lord, these curses will come upon you. And one of those curses is that they won't be able to dwell in safety in their land. They'll be scattered. They'll have to run from their enemies all the time. So the law had that particular function within the nation of Israel. It was their holiness code, and it was their constitution. It's also important to note at this juncture that the law was given to Israel as a unified whole. By most accounts, there are 613 commands in the law. 613. Aren't you praising God in your heart? You're not keeping track of 613 things that you need to do or not do every day, every waking moment of your life. Well, they had 613, and it was given to them as a whole. It wasn't subdivided, and it wasn't put into sections of this is just for a little bit and this is forever. But the law was dropped onto Israel, given to Israel through Moses, the entire law through Moses, to be for them to observe as a whole. In fact, in the New Testament, in James chapter 2, James tells us that if you've broken one of the commands, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. There's no sectioning out here. If you've coveted, well, then you've just broken the whole law if you just break one. So, We can't subdivide it. We can't say that it's just some of the law, but the law is all or nothing. 
When we talk about the law, it has to be the whole law. And people have tried to answer the question, uh, what are the functions of the law? What are the uses of the law in the lives of God's covenant people? And of course, that will depend a bit on whether you're talking about Old Covenant Israel or the New Covenant Church, and we'll get into that later. But uh, John Calvin is famous for, well, a few things, but one of his things was his three uses of the law. He said that the law had three particular uses. One of the uses was to reveal God's holiness, and in so doing, that would personally convict sinners of their sin. And I agree with that. I mean, I, I don't think there's a way you read the law in any sort of legitimate way and walk away and say, ah, God's just like us. He's pretty leisurely. He, he has a lot of wiggle room with what he thinks is right and wrong. God's a God of the gray area. No, I don't think so. You read through the law and you encounter a holy God who has outlined right and wrong. The second use of the law, according to Calvin, is that the law restrained sin in the nation, in Israel, through their fear of punishment. As the law comes along with its punishments, for it to be a law, by the way, it has to have punishments. If you remove punishments, then it's no longer a law, it's just opinions, right? Well, God gave punishments with breaking certain laws. And through fear of breaking these laws, like the death penalty, it restrained sin among the people. And I tend to agree with that too. I think, yeah, that probably did work. Uh, there's a reason why we pay at least a little bit of attention to speed limit signs, right? Because we know that if we break it and get caught, two sides to that, uh, then there will be some sort of punishment. And you wonder why our culture isn't as bad as it could be? Why isn't there total anarchy? Why isn't there people just stealing from people and killing people all over the place in broad daylight all the time? Well, because for now, we still have a system of law and there are still punishments. And that does work, doesn't it? You hang a punishment over someone's head and that will create fear. His third use of the law is that the law exists perpetually as a rule of life for all of God's people in all ages. And it's at this juncture that I part with our beloved brother Calvin and say, I don't see that in Scripture. And that is what we're going to be walking through in the coming uh, weeks and in these texts I'm sharing with you today. I do believe that the law, of course, revealed the holiness of God. I do believe that um, the law ignited fear in people that kept them uh, from sinning in times when they would. It didn't make them perfect, of course. It never could do that. But I don't think that the law or the tablets of stone continue as the object of our ministry today as the church. And that's the argument I see Paul making in 2 Corinthians 3. Rather, I believe the law has faded away, and that what is new, what has come, that's what's permanent. The testimony of Scripture is that the law has been supplanted by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' work, His living, dying, ascending into heaven after the resurrection, that has supplanted the law, and it's led to a change in the obligation for God's people. Turn to the book that's right after 2 Corinthians. It's Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verses 23 to 26. This is another one of those passages where Paul is addressing this same topic, and I want you to see 
how he describes the change that has taken place. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. It says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. Now notice what law is doing here in the lives of people. The law is serving as a a warden of sorts. The law is a custodian, or your translation might go on to say guardian, which is a good word. We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, or guardian, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The law functioned as a master, as a ruler over the people, as a guardian for the people. I think that's better terminology than tutor. But the whole point is, it led us, it led people to faith in Jesus Christ. As the law revealed the holiness of God and the utter inability of man to make himself holy, where should that naturally lead a sinful man? That should lead him to the thought of, I need a Savior. I need someone to save me. And notice what Paul says. Now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come and the person and work of Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law, you are no longer under that guardian. You're no longer held captive by the law. And you're not saying amen out loud, but I hope you're saying amen in your heart because if you put yourself back in Israel's condition before the time of Christ, how does Paul talk about this? How does the New Testament talk about this? It was a time of captivity. It was a time where sin had dominion. Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the strength or the power of sin is the law. But now in Christ, you are free. There's no captivity for you. There's freedom for you. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so let me give you a summary statement in my own words about this. The Mosaic law, that's the law given through Moses, not some sort of conglomerate law, the Mosaic law has ceased to be law for Christians. Rather, we pursue the law of Christ revealed through the apostles. The law given through Moses has ceased to be law for Christians. A couple times in the New Testament, Paul says explicitly, we are not under the law. The law has ceased to be law. Now, is it still the Word of God? Yes. Is it still profitable? Yes. Should you read it? Yes. But is it your law? No. It is not your law. Instead, we've been led to faith in Christ and we have a new obligation. There was an expiration of the law. Now, I do want to clarify that there is, of course, some overlap. If you look at the law given through Moses, if you go back and read Deuteronomy, which is my favorite Old Testament book, I love the book of Deuteronomy, it's consistent with Christian holiness. It's consistent with Christian living. However, when you set out to plan your Christian living, you don't start with the law of Moses. 
Christians will learn how God desires us to live by first looking to Christ and pursuing His love. The Christian life is marked by God's grace, isn't it? The Christian life is marked by God's Spirit that we now have in a new covenant. The Christian life is not marked by the harsh punishment of the law. And I'm so thankful for that because you would have gotten the death penalty yesterday for not observing Saturday, for not observing the Sabbath. The death penalty came with that. Well, the Christian life is not marked by the harsh punishment of the law. The Christian life is marked by God's grace. That law that was given through Moses that was initiated with the Ten Commandments, it was given to a certain people at a certain time. And as a regulating set of commands that was given by God, it always had an expiration date within God's program. It had an expiration date where it would fade away, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. The law belonged to one covenant made at Sinai. Do you remember that scene when the Ten Commandments were given? All of Israel's gathered, and you've got the clouds descending upon the mountain, and you have the voice of God coming out. And, and this is the initiation of the law that was given through Moses when the Ten Commandments were revealed. Well, that was a covenant that God was making with those people at that time, and it was a conditional covenant. And it had much to do with their role as a nation in that land. But we are people not under that old covenant. We are people under a new covenant. God has made a new covenant And he started with his church that is made of both Jew and Gentile. We see that there has been a covenant replacement in Scripture. If you're still in 2 Corinthians 3, look down with me again at verse 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 6, where Paul says that God has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. It's a new covenant that's marked by comprehensive forgiveness of sin. It's marked by grace. It's marked by the coming of the Holy Spirit who leads us into truth and into all righteousness, a new covenant. And the church exists now as God's new work. With this new covenant came a new work called the church, and Christians are truly free from the law in Christ. I want to show you another passage. It's back in the book of Romans. Turn back two books to the book of Romans, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 7, I'll look at verses 1 through 6. Again, look for language about how God's program has gone through a change as He's made a new covenant. It says in Romans 7 verse 1, Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living and she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. There's his example. Now, what's the point? Verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, 
the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That's some pretty amazing language there, isn't it? You were bound under the law, but through Christ, by believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ, what He has done in your place, what He has done as a representative, by believing in His work, you have been released from the law, verse 6 says. You've died to the law so that you can be joined to Jesus. So instead of bearing fruit for death, that's what you were naturally, by the way. You were a fruit bearer, but it was just fruit for death. Instead of that, you're now bearing fruit for God, and you're bearing fruit by the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit that only exists in the new covenant. So there's been a fundamental change of obligation. God's people, their obligation to the law ended in Christ. The purpose of our dying to the law, as Paul spells it out in Romans 7, is so that we can be joined to Christ. You cannot be joined to Christ until you die to the law. You cannot bear fruit for God until you die to the law. It's a necessary precondition to being joined to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And you could cross-reference this with Romans 8, the first four verses of that chapter, which I think I'll pass over today for the sake of time. But the big idea here is that Christ is not the law. Christ is better than the law. Amen? And Christ is higher than the law. His love is better. Christ is better than the law in every way, and through His teaching and His life, there has been an even higher standard revealed. And I think this is probably the most helpful way to understand this. Because when people, you start saying, well, you've died to the Ten Commandments, you're no longer under the Ten Commandments, people can start freaking out. We want the Ten Commandments outside of our courthouses, don't we? (laughs) Well, think of it this way. Christ set the bar higher. Christ is higher than the law. The law only goes up a certain amount to the full holiness of God. The law is not the full holiness of God. But what about Jesus? Can you get holier than Jesus? No, you cannot. You can't. So Jesus gives us an even higher standard. You may remember that He said in Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what do we see in Jesus' life? He fulfilled the law, didn't He? He kept the law perfectly. And even those aspects of the law that had to do with sacrifices, He fulfilled those. He was the spotless lamb, the Passover lamb. And He was a substitute for the sins of the people, where He died in our place for our sins. And because He did fulfill the law, now we can walk freely in a new way. Because Jesus completed or fulfilled, perfected the law, now we can walk in newness of life. There is something new for the new work of God, the church. Turn with me to Romans 10, just verse 4. If you can grasp this verse, you'll be doing well. Romans 10:4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
And it could also be said that he is the goal of the law, the telos, the end. The law, the whole point of it, the whole goal of the law was to lead people to Jesus. Jesus stands at the end of the law's purpose. The whole purpose of the law could be summed up in saying to lead us to Christ. And now our role, our job as Christians, we are to embrace what has now arrived, Jesus Christ. We are to embrace the one who came as the goal of the law, the fulfillment of the law. The law itself was not the end, but Christ is the end. And since He has come, we can embrace Him. We embrace our Savior. So if the law is no longer our obligation, including the Ten Commandments, as Paul explicitly calls them out, the tablets of stone, if that is no longer our obligation as Christians, what is our obligation? Well, our obligation is no longer to tablets, but to a person. Our obligation is Christ Himself, and He's the one who gives us a greater standard. I want to show you that through some of His teachings, starting in Matthew 5. You don't have to turn there, it'll be on the screen. But Matthew 5, starting at verse 43, look how Jesus raises the bar. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Let's dwell on verse 44 for a moment. Jesus says, He says to us, love your enemies. Do you know how many times the law tells us to love our enemies? Never. That's not one of the commands of the law. That was not a command given to Israel. But Jesus comes along and He says, you've heard it was said, but I say to you, and He raises the bar to a higher standard. And he exemplified this standard, didn't he? And this is really what was at the heart of the law all along, was self-sacrificial love, self-sacrificial holiness to God. But Jesus comes along and makes it explicit in his own terms and in his own example. He prayed for those who persecuted him. When he's on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. He's praying for his persecutors. He's higher than the law. He's loving his enemies. He's caring for Judas all along knowing that Judas will betray him, higher than the law. John chapter 13, starting in verse 34, Jesus was teaching His disciples, and He said, "'A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are My disciples, if you have love for one another.'" This was a new commandment. And it was a new commandment because, of course, Jesus here is stating His own terms, but He's also providing the example. As Jesus has loved us, we are to love one another. That's a new command. They didn't have the example of Jesus before Jesus, and then they did. And now, the governing principle that they're obligated to is Jesus and His higher standard of love. One more passage, it's 1 John 3, 23, just one verse. This is His commandment the commandment of God, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just 
as He commanded us. You want to sum up what your obligation is for living as a Christian? Here it is. You don't have to try to go back and sum it up with a list of hundreds of commands. You go back and you say, to believe in Jesus Christ with all the implications that come with that, and to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's the Christian life. And you're enabled to do it now. And that's a really striking aspect to all of this. The law never enabled anybody to do anything. What can tablets of stone do for you? Nothing. But what can God the Spirit dwelling in you as you are the temple of the Spirit of God, what can He do? That's powerful. That's where the power lies. And that's the problem with the law. The law was true. The law, holy, just, good, as Paul says. But the law gave us obligations and never gave us the power. Jesus comes along, and because of what He has done, we now have the power to live for God. We have the power to bear fruit. And all of these uh, higher standards that we have, they're addressed in 2 Corinthians 3 also. So let's go back there, which if you forgot is our main passage for today. I think I forgot for a moment. But 2 Corinthians 3, and let's see this in our passage today in Paul's words. 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, again it says that this church, and we can include ourselves in, that, in this, he says, you all are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see, as letters of Christ, as we are, those who have been saved by God through Jesus Christ, we don't now become witnesses to tablets of stone. We don't become witnesses to legal demands. But instead, we become witnesses of Christ through the indwelling Spirit. You see that this letter has been written not with ink and not on tablets of stone, verse 3 says, but the letter has been written with the Spirit of God on your heart. God has come into your life and He's caused you, be, caused you to be born again to a living hope. A very stark contrast with the tablets of stone. And it makes a very big difference if you look down in verse 6, it says, starting in the middle of verse 6, that the letter or the commandment, the law, it kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now ask yourself, do you want to be a witness to something that kills or do you want to be a witness to something that gives life? I hope you want to be a witness to the life-giving God, God the Son who paid the price and God the Spirit who now enables our lives. Look in verse 7. Paul defines the law as the ministry of death, letters engraved on stones. Do you want to be a witness or a minister of death? Or do you want to have a ministry that's defined by life? He says that this ministry of death came with glory. The sons of Israel couldn't even look at the face of Moses. Remember, his face was glowing when he came down off the mountain. But he says, this glory was fading. Those legal demands, those commands etched in stone, they could never sanctify the people. They could only behold the glory and, and just die in the glory. They were nailed to the wall. They were guilty. There was nothing that that 
glorious ministry of death could do to give them life. It was a ministry that killed. But now, faith has come, Jesus has come, there's good news, there's a new covenant, and we aren't ministers of that glory, we are ministers of a greater glory. We are not ministers of a glory that fades away as Christians, but we are witnesses to and ministers of a glory that is permanent because it's rooted in the eternal work of Christ that lasts generation after generation, that affects everyone's eternal state, whether it's in justification or condemnation. We have something greater than the law. We have the person of Jesus. Down in verse 11 of this passage, it tells us that the law has expired. This fading away has already begun. And with the law fading away, the old covenant, that conditional covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai, that too has faded away. And in its place is a new covenant And in this new covenant, the preeminence of Jesus Christ will never expire. The old covenant with its set of demands fading away, but the new covenant with this preeminent Savior, Jesus Christ, the man who is God, will never fade away. And the glory of the latter outshines the former. So as Christians, we exist in this new covenant. And I think it helps us to finish with hopefully about 15 minutes, uh, where we think about the significance of the new covenant in light of this conversation. Because again, in verse 6, Paul tells us that all of this hinges on the new covenant. We are made adequate, not as servants of the old covenant with its law, but servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And if you haven't been coming on Wednesday nights, I want to encourage you to do so, because much of what we're discussing Today and next week, it goes right together with what we're talking about in our Wednesday night lessons. If you can't come on Wednesdays, hopefully you're at least following along with the audio and listening, where we're walking through the covenants of the Bible. And we started with the Abrahamic covenant, we're going to look at the Davidic, and then the New. Okay, those aren't the only covenants in the Bible, but those are three really big ones. And we'll be talking about the New Covenant in the coming weeks. And so these two studies really do go together. But I want us to see verses 4 to 6 here in this chapter as a whole, one more time as we finish our study today dwelling on the new covenant. Paul says, "...such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life." Well, I want you to know here from the start that Paul didn't think of this language on the fly. When Paul says that there's a new covenant, this language is not original to Paul, okay? In fact, we have hundreds of years before Paul talk of a new covenant, and I want us to see that. There are two passages outside of 2 Corinthians for the rest of this sermon, and one of them is this one, Jeremiah 31, okay? So if you can turn there, please do, Jeremiah chapter 31 where Paul is drawing on this idea that was given by God through the prophet Jeremiah about the coming new covenant, this covenant that would take the place of the covenant that was given through Moses. This covenant had been a long time coming as Jeremiah was some 500 years before the time of Christ, just about, and God is 
giving Israel hope about this covenant in this passage. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. This initial promise of a new covenant was made to national Israel in a time of great despair as a nation. And it was a time when they were still under the law. But he gives them hope of a future day. Jeremiah 31, starting in, we'll start in verse 33. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Gareb. Then it will turn to Goa. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. What an amazing promise God gives. And it starts with the days are coming when God is going to make a new covenant with Israel. His nation that He formed placed in this particular land, God is going to make a new covenant with them. And if you want to further study, you can jot down Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37, go into this same idea. Ezekiel 36 and 37, God promises to make a new covenant with Israel. And if you noticed here, there are a couple of very important aspects to note. This is unconditional. Notice that God doesn't say to Israel, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel that if they do this, 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 and this, then I will do that, that, and that, and that. That's not how it's presented here, is it? This is an unconditional covenant. God is saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to place these things in their heart. They're going to know me. They're going to serve me. It's a sovereign work of God's grace. He is the active one in this passage, and they are passive participants in the covenant as they are changed by His sovereign grace. But I read through the end of the chapter, through verse 40, I read through those difficult names and those things that just make no sense to us. What's a corner gate, after all? Uh, What what is the brook Kidron? I'm assuming these are things that you just don't have off the top of your head. But I read through there so you could see that this covenant did not just contain spiritual elements. This covenant that God promises to make with Israel when the days come It contains spiritual elements, but it also contains physical elements, doesn't it? Notice the very end of verse 40. It says here that this land, this geographical region for this nation will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. 
there will be a restoration for this nation that will lead to permanent peace and safety. Now, we know that hasn't happened yet. You can see Israel in the headlines every week, can't you? They possess part of their land now. They don't possess all of it, but they don't have peace and safety. And there's a day coming when it can be said that they are there in peace and safety permanently. They will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. So we have spiritual elements and physical elements. The spiritual elements, God says He's going to write His law on their hearts. They will have unity with God, He says. There will be forgiveness of sin. If we went to Ezekiel's account in Ezekiel 36 and 37, we would see they would receive His Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit is a part of this new covenant. And through all of it, Christ would be magnified as Savior. The Messiah is central to all of this, the righteous branch of David that Jeremiah 33 talks about. He's a central part of this whole plan, and He reigns as Savior. But in the physical realm, there's also going to be covenantal fulfillment, where there will be restoration in the land. Abraham's progeny will be forever restored in their land. And central to that is Christ as King. Christ will not only be their Savior, but He'll reign as King. In fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, He'll reign on the throne. So in this promise, this big promise that God gave to Israel hundreds of years ago from Paul's perspective, and for us it's thousands of years ago, they saw the spiritual and physical covenant, a new covenant that was coming. But what Israel could not foresee is that there would be two comings of Christ, that He would come first as a lamb and He would come again as a roaring lion. They couldn't foresee that there would be a first coming of Christ, the first advent that we particularly celebrate every Christmas, and that there would be a second coming of Christ where He would come to make war with His enemies and to establish His kingdom. And they couldn't see that there would be at least a 2,000-year gap, right, as we're living in it, where there would be this international organism called the church, where Jew and Gentile are brought together in one new man. This is a new work that the Old Testament didn't reveal, but that we only see revealed in the New Testament. And so the final passage I want us to look at is Ephesians chapter 2 that discusses this in-between time. And what we'll find as we focus on this new work of God is that the salvation aspects of the, the new covenant the spiritual elements of this new covenant have begun to be applied to the church, and the church is made up of Jew and Gentiles without respect to ethnicity. But that physical element that is retained for, for Israel, it just hasn't come yet. We're living in between. We're living in the already but not yet. That's where we are as God's church. Let's read about this one new man in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. In Ephesians 2.11, it says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. What an amazing passage. There's a new work of God that was not prophesied in the Old Testament. That new work is the church, where Jew and Gentile are one new man reconciled in Christ. Notice it's a ministry of reconciliation, not a ministry of switching identities. We don't become Jews, and that's how we get this one new man. The Jews don't become Gentiles, and that's how we get one new man. But instead, Jew and Gentile are reconciled in the one new man. There's a reconciliation between the ethnicities based on the work of Christ. And notice in verses 14 and 15 of what I just read, what had to be removed to achieve this reconciliation. Did you catch it? It says that Jesus Christ abolished in His flesh that which was the enmity, the law, the law of commandments that was contained in ordinances. That was the barrier between Jew and Gentile. What separated the Jew from all the pagans in the world? They had the law. They were given the ordinances of God. In Psalm 147, it says, God, you gave your commandments to Jacob. You have not dealt thus with any other nation. That was the separation. But now in Jesus, there's a fulfillment and an abolishing of the commands that we might have unity in Christ. This is a pretty startling passage, isn't it? This has massive implication. We have received reconciliation because what Jesus has done in His body on the cross. The old covenant commands had to be abolished in Christ. Let me read to you a couple of quotes that sum this up in other words. From Matthew Ferris, in his really good book on this topic, he writes, The abolition of the law means that Gentile inclusion in the promises, does not come by their way of becoming Israelites. Aren't you glad for that? You don't have to become Israelites to enjoy the promises of God. This is from a guy whose name I'm going to mispronounce, Sigurd Grindheim. Not an American, apparently, uh, or at least not... Uh, anyway, I, I'm running out of time. All right, uh, this guy... He says, viewed under its function as regulating the covenant relationship, the law is abolished in its entirety. This is the reason why the Gentiles can now be members of the same body. In the Old Testament, they had to become circumcised. That is, they had to become Jews in order to be fully incorporated into the people of God. But now the Gentiles, as Gentiles, are fellow heirs and members of the same body. What a promise. What a reality that we're living in. You are enjoying the promises of God as a Gentile. In the church, there is no obligation to tablets of stone, as was Israel's case. But instead, we have an obligation to Christ and His love, which is higher than the law. This can be hard to accept for some people, but again, I would encourage you to consider that pesky Sabbath day command. Some people want to hang on and say, 
But we're under the Ten Commandments, aren't we? Those can't go away. Well, commandment number four is about Saturday. You don't get any kind of re-modification on that Sabbath in the Bible. It's always Saturday. And we are not obligated to observe Saturday the way the Jews were, are we? You're free to work on Saturday. Praise God or not for that one, right? (laughs) But you are free from the law. You're free from the obligation to the Ten Commandments. And to really hammer this home, this is another amazing quote. This is from Brian Rosner. He says in his book on the law, Paul never says, as he does of the Jews, that believers in Christ rely on the law, boast about the law, know God's will through the law, are educated in the law, have light, knowledge, and truth because of the law, do observe, keep the law, on occasion transgress the law, or possess the law as a letter or written code, as a book, as decrees, or as commandments. Paul also never says, as he does of the Jews, that Christians learn from the law, walk according to the law, and expect good fruit and good works to flow from obedience to the law. That is a pretty massive statement, but he has the New Testament backing on that. An obligation change has occurred, and we are obligated to Christ, not the law. I have a little more to say, but I should probably stop. So come back next week for the dramatic conclusion. (laughs) But next week we will focus on how instead of law keepers, we are now fruit bearers. We'll talk about that distinction. We'll talk about how Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we are not of the letter, but we are of the Spirit. And we'll talk about what do we do with the law now? Are we against the law? Do we cast it aside? Do we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament? And uh, the answer to that is no, absolutely not. And we'll talk through that next week, okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this study you've led us into through your word. Help us to grow in our understanding of what it is that you have for us, how we are to live in this life as servants, ministers of a new covenant. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.